Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. And welcome to episode 32 of the History of Books and Wine podcast. I am your host this week, Madeline Martin. I am a USA Today bestselling author of historical romance with page-turning action, tough heroines, and the men who are strong enough to love them. I am going in a different order this week. Lori was kind enough to swap with me because when she was doing her podcast, I was on my trip to Indonesia and Timor-Leste. It was a really amazing trip. I was there for about, well, I was, I was going to say two and a half weeks, but really it was two weeks because the half part was pretty much all flying. It was a 13-hour time difference in Timor-Leste and a 12-hour time difference in Bali, and it was a total of 36 hours to fly there. I think really the flights that were the hardest were the ones that went from New York to Doha, which was about 14 hours, Then there was like an hour layover, and then there was another 10-hour flight that went from Doha to Bali, and then we had to go the opposite going back home. Those were the worst because it was basically like 25 hours of straight flying. But I am back. I am, for the most part, recovered from my jet lag. It was an absolutely amazing trip. Anybody who's friends with me on Facebook can see all of my pictures. And I am also on Instagram where you can see some of my pictures from my trip as well. But it was an amazing, amazing trip. And today, I'm going to be talking about torture. Actually, this whole month, we're talking about torture. It's kind of leading up to my favorite month ever, which is October, and we'll be discussing, well, I'll get to that at the end. So interesting thing about torture, when I was a little girl, I'm an army brat, for those of you who didn't know, and we used to live in Germany. And we went to a city in Germany called Rotenburg, and they apparently have one of the biggest torture museums in all of Europe. I didn't know that at the time. All I knew is that we walked into this place, and it was amazing. Like, first of all, when you walked up, there was a fake person inside one of those bird cages that's meant for humans. And then when you went inside, it was like completely different floors of all different kinds of torture. There were Iron Maidens. There were the Skull's Bridal, like Eliza had been talking about. Any kind of torture that you can imagine was in there. And my mind, my little mind was just completely blown. And to this day, it still remains one of my favorite museums of all time. Apparently, there is actually a torture museum here in St. Augustine, but we haven't had a chance to go yet, so we figure we'll do it for a nice family outing sometime. (laughs) So tonight, I am again drinking the Gnarly Head 1924 Double Black. This happens to be apparently one of my favorite wines. It's really delicious, and we have a little bit of it left over from last night, and so that's what I'm drinking tonight. And I'm actually, we'll be recording our podcast for next week, tomorrow, because Eliza and I will be at a conference called Nink. And so we have to get that done early. So I'm saving my new can of wine that I bought for tomorrow night. (laughs) Can't drink it all in one night. And that was kind of fun. I know we've been doing a lot of cans, but they're fun. So this one is in a bottle. This delivers rich aromas of blackberry preserve, cocoa, raspberry, and caramel, setting the stage for a juicy core of concentrated, dense blackberry and fig jam flavors that finish with a hint of baking spice. It is delicious. So I'm going to go ahead and pop open this bottle. 
There we go. And I'm going to pour the rest of it into my glass in the best sound ever. And I am going to take a sip. Yum, it's delicious. It's the reason I keep drinking this wine. It's so good. Now on to torture. So we are each taking three different implements of torture and discussing them. I have my three tonight. The first one is the brazen bull. And I actually saw this on Immortals, where there were three women who were being tortured in it. And once I start talking about it, you probably will recognize it as well. A man named Pirillos, 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 something like that, invented the bull for Phalaris, whose name is easier to say, thank you, Phalaris, because Phalaris was trying to find new ways of killing criminals. The bull was made out of bronze and created to be the size of a real-life bull. It had a door on one side where the person was to be placed inside before a fire was lit beneath it. Oh yeah, the person would be roasted alive inside. Pretty gross. But that's not all. And a totally sadistic twist. There is an acoustic device on the inside of the bull's head that has a bunch of different tubes and stoppers that is devised to change the sound of screaming into the snorts and bellows of a bull. So instead of hearing somebody screaming as they're being cooked alive in there, you basically would hear the bull. you know, snorting and, and doing bull-like sounds. I obviously don't really know what a bull sounds like. But anyways, it was said that Paralos, pardon me, it probably is not how it's pronounced, but that's what he's going to be called, Paralos, said, his screams will come to you through the pipes as the tenderest, most pathetic, most melodious of bellowings. Paralos was not rewarded for his invention, however. Apparently, Phalaris was slightly offended by that description and instead tricked him into getting into the bull, then locked Paralos in it and lit the fire to test out the acoustics. However, fortunately for Paralos, before he could die, Phalaris released him. Pretty awful. <laughs> I can't imagine having to test out your own torture device, but then maybe somebody who is torturing people anyways kind of maybe deserves it. I don't know. I can't even begin to wrap my head around people who can invent a torture device for somebody. At any rate, scholars question whether the bull was actually ever even used and or if it was just simply a myth. Some have even suggested that it could have been a form of early propaganda. However, there are other accounts throughout history that state Romans used to use this Grecian torture method against Christians. One specifically was St. Eustace. His was the most popular story about Christians being killed in this and apparently it was said that he was thrown into there with his wife and children and they were all cooked alive together, which is absolutely horrible. However, it probably really didn't actually happen. And so we'll just go on ahead and tuck that away as being imaginary and just stories that tell people to scare them and not being real. Moving on to the next one is keel hauling. And I actually saw this one on Black Sails. Apparently there's just torture everywhere I'm watching TV. So I wanted to chat about this one. It was pretty awful from what I saw on the show. And if you haven't seen Black Sails, you have to because it's amazing. The keel hauling doesn't happen till later, so you're safe. This was done in front of a crowd to ensure everyone saw it to make an example of the offender. This was done on a boat. So you really couldn't do this not on a boat. So this would generally be a punishment that was meted out while you were at sea. So a rope would be drawn around the underside of the ship and the person would be tied to it. They could either, they would basically be wrenched from one side of the boat underneath the hull up to the other side. This could be done from side to side, or in some cases, it could even go from front to back, basically the bow to stern, which would be an even longer trek. So what would happen when the person would be flipped around to the underside of the boat and scraped along the hull 
it literally was like they would be scraped because the bottom was incredibly ragged and sharp with barnacles and mussels and all kinds of other flotsam and jetsam that were accumulating on the bottom of that boat. And of course, all of it very, very disgusting. So if they went really, really slow, the person could die. Sometimes people would hit their heads and lose consciousness and drown. Sometimes they would just, you know, drown because they were taking too long to go underneath it. Sometimes they would die from their infections if they actually did survive the keel hauling. And sometimes, oh, and this is like the worst, blood from their wounds would draw the attention of sharks. Like it's not already enough that you're being keel hauled, but now you have sharks coming at you thinking you smell delicious. Oh, no thank you. So contrary to what I saw in Black Sails, it wasn't often implemented by pirates. The Greeks, however, did implement it. There is a vase in a museum that actually has a depiction of keel hauling being performed. Yikes, I can't even. I can't imagine, however, how it would be a great deterrent from other sailors seeing somebody receive that punishment to never, ever, ever do that themselves. And my last implement of torture is impaling. I initially started looking this up because I know that Vlad the Impaler had a predilection for impaling his victims. And I thought, oh, well, that could be an interesting one to do. And when I started looking into it, wow, are there a lot of different ways to impale people. I am really creeped out at people's imagination for implementing this kind of torture on other people. At any rate, Vlad the Impaler was, of course, the most notorious of the impaler hailing sadists who would inflict this onto other people. At one point, he actually impaled the entire army that he had defeated, and it was said that there was a forest of 20,000 men all impaled on spikes and rotting that were left in his wake. Wow, that's a lot of sticks. Uh, And a lot of guys, obviously. Anyways, I started looking into this a little bit more, and I... There are a lot of really awful, grisly details. I am not going to be going into them. I was listening to Lori's podcast and she was talking about how she's kind of squeamish when it comes to torture. And I was thinking, wow, if this is actually making me a little bit nauseous, maybe I should forego some of these details. So if you are perfectly fine reading about some of the more morbid and gory details, feel free to look up impaling, specifically vertical or longitudinal impalement, because that is really where... Wow, it gets pretty creative, but I am not going to go into detail because it really gets bad. And also do keep in mind that if you do Google this, make sure that you only go to the articles section and don't ever, ever, ever go to the images section when researching morbid, horrible, terrible, awful things because people like to post really bad pictures that you can't unsee. Just saying. So vertical slash longitudinal impalement was probably the worst one. I mean, not that any kind of impalement would really be a good one, but this one was pretty bad. Basically, the person was made to sit or be propped against the sharpened stick. In some cases, the stick was actually even greased or the person was weighted down with various weights. And as eventually their legs could not support them any longer, the stick would, you know, eventually and peel them. And there were different ways that they could put the stick, I guess, uh, that would change this. Again, that's going into some of the morbid details that I'm not going to get into. But this torture could actually last anywhere from 30 seconds to three days to even six days. Apparently, some sicko torturers devised a way to keep people alive to make them experience that for as long as possible. I think the longest that I actually saw was there was one who was purported to have lasted eight days. I cannot even imagine how awful. 
So like I said, there are more details, but I'm not getting into them. So Google them, just don't go to the image. The next one are the horizontal or transversal impalement. This is basically where the person gets staked through the stomach or it could be the heart. A lot of times they would take women who they thought were witches and they would impale them through the heart, which is kind of interesting because that's what they always have with vampires. But also a lot of times this would happen with women who committed infanticide, where basically they had killed their own child or they had aborted a baby that they didn't want to have and the woman would be staked through the heart. But basically you get pinned to the ground or a tree or a wall or wherever the person creatively decided to stick you. Next comes a form called gouching, and it sounds weird to say, but it's the name of it. Gouching is a form of impaling in which a person is lifted up on ropes over hooks and spikes and other various awful, sharp, terrible things. So once they're pulled up on the rope, the rope is then let go and the person releases and they fall wherever they may. You could live, you could die, you could suffer for a very long time. So it was kind of like the luck of the draw where you ended up landing. Sometimes they would even do it a second time if it wasn't really exciting enough. And sometimes executioners could even be added into the mix to stir up the party and really make it messy. Gross. And next are hooks that were on walls in cities. This is sort of similar to gouging, but these cities were actually erected with the hooks in place for this specific purpose. Basically what they would do is prisoners would be hung from the hooks on the city walls as a warning to others while they were still alive so that they would slowly die and then eventually be left hanging there. Yeah. It's pretty morbid. The last one that I found when it comes to impaling is a thing called Sengela. Sengela are where the hook is actually punctured through the skin and hooked around a person's ribs and they are left hanging by their ribs basically until they die. So these are all really, really awful. These torture devices were always done in front of other people. And really the reason they did it, first of all, was a source of very horrible, morbid entertainment. I would never be able to watch something like this. I imagine that there were probably worse squeamish people back then who had difficulty watching it. But for the most part, I think a lot of people kind of got excited, like the bloodlust to watch this. Ugh, I can't even imagine. A lot of times they would make these days very like have vendors who were selling food and ribbons and music and they probably would you know try to build up this event and everything to really make it exciting for people but I will say that I would imagine people seeing this be done on a pretty regular basis would certainly be enough to dissuade them from ever wanting to follow in these people's footsteps and commit similar crimes that they had done because you certainly don't want to be the next person who gets gouged or keelhauled or popped into the brazen bowl because no thank you. I'm going to have a sip of wine after talking about all that torture because it was pretty horrific. Now I'm going to be talking about what I have read this week. This week I read a book called, actually I listened to a book called Codename Verity by Elizabeth Wine, which was narrated by Morvan Christie and Lucy Gaskell. I love it when there is more than one narrator because I feel like it adds so much more to the book. But so anyways, this one had two narrators. I've actually listened to this book before. It was so good that I wanted to go back and listen to it again. I really enjoy World War II books, and this is a World War II book. And if you haven't listened to it or read it, I highly recommend it. It's really, really good. It gets a little bit heavy sometimes on the aeronautical details, all the details about the planes and everything. But you'll see there's a reason for it. But it's so incredibly good. All right, so this is what it's about. October 11th, 1943. A 
British spy plane crashes in Nazi-occupied France. Its pilot and passenger are best friends. One of the girls has a chance at survival. The other has lost the game before it's barely begun. When Verity is arrested by the Gestapo, she's sure she doesn't stand a chance. As a secret agent captured in enemy territory, she's living a spy's worst nightmare. Her Nazi interrogators give her a simple choice, reveal her mission or face a grisly execution. As she intricately weaves her confession, Verity uncovers her past, how she became friends with the pilot Maddie, and why she left Maddie and the wrecked fuselage of their plane. On each new scrap of paper, Verity battles for her life, confronting her views on courage and failure and her desperate hope to make it home. But will trading her secrets be enough to save her from the enemy? I almost feel like that blurb doesn't even do it justice. It is such a very, very good book, especially the end. It's just, it's amazing. So if you haven't read it and you do enjoy World War II novels, I highly recommend Codename Verity. And now I'm going to be talking about my book. I'm talking about The Earl of Benton, which was one of the books in the original Wicked Earls Club book series that was put out by myself and several other authors where we all released a book one week apart. So round two of The Wicked Earls is coming soon. Yay! And a lot of the other authors are way more on top of their game than I am. Their books are all done. I, however, am writing my book right now. (laughs) I'm having fun getting into the story and, and sort of delving in to this current Earl of Benton right now, having fun delving into Earl of Benton and getting some ideas and everything to continue on with the second book, which is the Earl of Oakhurst, and it is available for pre-order, and I will probably finish it in the next two weeks, so it'll definitely be done in time for the release day. So the Earl of Benton, without further ado, Alistair Johnstone's days of running whiskey have come to an abrupt halt when he inherits an earldom. After years of living in Scotland and denying his English heritage, he now must return despite his mother's bitter contempt and his own lack of desire. When his mother's attempt to run whiskey goes awry, Alistair is forced to step in and save her by doing one last whiskey run. However, if he's caught, he will face a traitor's death. Emma Thorne's uncle is trying to kill her and so far has failed, thank goodness. But with only one month until she reaches her majority, inherits her fortune, and is released from his guardianship, she knows she is not safe. Emma escapes to a nearby estate where she stumbles upon a house party being held by the Wicked Earl's Club and finds herself at the mercy of the most extraordinary Earl, one who could save her or see her condemned. When innocent lies become reality and danger follows them both every step of the way, could love be the answer to both their problems or will their passions be their undoing? And one of the things that I really enjoyed the most about Earl of Benton is he has a dog named Beast, and he's like the most affable dog ever. It just makes me want to pick him up and snuggle him. He's super, super cute. In fact, when I was writing, every time I'd write a scene with Beast in it, I'd find that I was always like giggling and like laughing and and smiling while I was writing it because he was so cute. So my reader question today is, where do you enjoy drinking wine the most? Well, I personally enjoy relaxing at home with a glass of wine because even though I can be outgoing sometimes, I'm really kind of an introvert and I love being home with a comfy bra on and comfy pants on. I have this really pretty glass that I got from a Globe inbox. That's what I like to have my wine in. It's like this iridescent pattern. It's 
It's like a little swirl with iridescent. It's very, very pretty. And if anybody has ever heard of the Globin box before, or maybe you have also gotten it before, it's a really neat box because it employs artisans from all over the world. And it comes with a pamphlet letting you know something about that artisan. This particular artisan who made these beautiful wine glasses that I love so much, he actually is in Mexico and he started learning his trade at eight years old, which blows my mind because I can't even get my kids to do homework and they're older than eight years old. And to think that at eight years old, this guy is learning how to blow glass and make his career. I love these glasses. They're so pretty. I love the story behind them and they've got a nice heft to it. So that's also really nice. So my question for readers is, do you have a favorite glass or mug or cup that you like to drink out of? And if so, why? You can send us your answer and any questions that you may have for us at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. You can check out our website at historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com to hear our podcast and read through our show notes. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google, and Alexa. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Feel free to leave a review if you've enjoyed this show. New episodes are posted every Thursday with upcoming shows including September 26th, which is Happy Hour, where we chat about more torture. And then October, we'll be kicking off the podcast on witches. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful evening and enjoy your class again.